morning, everyone. How you doing? I also want to say hello and good morning to those of you who are watching online. Good to, to be with you all this morning and with you in spirit if you're watching. Um, we are going to continue on in our series today called Hope Through History. And as we start off here, I just want to start off with a question. And, and that is this. When you hear the phrase, will the real so-and-so please stand up, what comes into your mind? Yeah, if you're uh, anywhere near my age range, like in your 30s or 40s, you think of a song from the early 2000s uh, by a rapper named Eminem called Will the Real Slim Shady Please Stand Up. Now, if you've never heard that song, uh, do yourself a favor and don't look it up because it's a terrible song and you'll be very disappointed. But uh, again, if you're around my age, that's typically what you might think of. Now, if you're in your 20s or younger, my guess is you hear that phrase and really nothing comes to your mind. Um, and it doesn't have any cultural relevance, but uh, for those of you who are a, a little older, maybe in your 50s and up, when you hear the phrase, well, the real so-and-so, please stand up, you most likely think of a game show uh, from the 50s, 60s, and 70s called To Tell the Truth. Now, raise your hand if you remember that. Has anyone ever seen To Tell the Truth? Okay. Well, my understanding is that actually there's been, a, in the last few months, a new rendition of it. Uh, but for those of you like me who have never heard of the show, the game show. Basically, what it is is you have four different celebrity panelists, and they are then introduced with these three individuals who each claim to be uh, this, this certain person. And, and the premise of the show is that the, the celebrity panelists get to ask these three individuals various questions in order to try to figure out which one is the real person. And so, for example, I uh, watched one this last week on YouTube, and it, was, uh, it actually had Ronald Reagan. Uh, as one of the celebrity panelists back in 58 when he was uh, just an actor. And uh, in this particular episode, they were uh, trying to figure out who was the real Walter Castle. Now, Walter Castle was a, uh, apparently the lead baritone in the Metropolitan Opera Company. And so, again, Reagan and these other uh, celebrity panelists, they were uh, going back and forth asking questions. And then at some point uh, near the end of the show, you have to determine who you think the real person is. And so you write that down, and then the host will say, will the real so-and-so please stand up? And so in this case, it was, will the real Walter Castle please stand up? And, and so the person stands up, and in doing so, they reveal that they are the true uh, one, and the rest are just indicators of faith. Now, you're probably wondering, why in the world would you bring up uh, a game show from the 50s? Well, uh, the reason is because in today's story uh, that we're going to look at from the Old Testament, the one question that really dominates the passage is who is the real God? And what we're going to see as we walk through this story is that as that question is being asked, as it's being raised, the Lord, Yahweh, very clearly stands up. And so let's go ahead and look at that now. You can open up in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 18. So again, if you've said all along, you can follow along in the Bible app. But our outline to guide us through the story will be, number one, the confrontation in verses 1 to 21. Number two, the competition in verses 22 to 38. And then finally, we'll look at the conclusion in verses 39 to 46. But before we jump in here, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you that you have uh, held the rain away. We pray that you would continue to do that throughout this service. And Lord, we pray that you would help us today as we uh, engage with your presence, as we engage with your 
word, Lord, would you give us eyes to see? Lord, would you give us ears to hear? And would you give us hearts to know, hearts that are able to understand, but also who are able to respond? And so, Lord, we invite your presence here this morning. We ask that you would guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so our first point in the outline this morning is the confrontation. And so let me uh, start off by giving you some of the backstory here uh, for the, the passage. Uh, basically, from a time standpoint, this is about a hundred years or so after the days of King David. And if you remember a couple weeks ago when we started this series, I, I said during this time period, you have to remember that Israel was divided into two separate uh, nations, or two separate kingdoms. Again, you had uh, Israel to the north, and then you had Judah, which is to the south. And if you remember two weeks ago when I, I, I talked, we looked at this, this king, this guy named King Jehoshaphat, who was the king of the southern kingdom, Judah. And, and if you remember, which I don't expect you to because I know what it's like to hear a sermon, but just in case in the off chance you remember, I, I, I was talking about Jehoshaphat, and I mentioned that uh, he had made this improper or this unholy alliance with the king of Israel, his contemporary, a guy named King Ahab. And the reason that it was improper was because King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they were these wicked rulers. They, they were guilty of leading Israel into worshiping false gods. And again, one of the verses that I, I, I shared there as a way to just illustrate how, uh, what kind of man Ahab was, was 1 Kings 16.30, which says this, Ahab, son of Omri, he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than did any of those before him. And so because this was true of him, God caused a, a famine to come onto Israel for three years. And the real irony about that, about that specific punishment, is that the main false god that Israel was worshiping at this time was the god Baal. Or I think it's properly pronounced Baal, but uh, Baal's easier to say, so I'm going to stick with that, so sorry for you about this, you're out there. But uh, that's what we're going to say. But um, the reason that that's ironic is because the god Baal was known as the storm god, or the god of fertility. And yet, here you have Israel worshiping this god, showing devotion to this god, and yet they're in the midst of a severe famine and a severe drought. Now, the thing is, is that Yahweh uh, announced that this was going to happen through the prophet Elijah. And so Elijah tells Ahab that, that as part of their punishment for worshiping these false gods, God's going to send a famine on the land. And yet, with that knowledge, and being told that up front, neither Ahab nor the people of Israel repent and turn back to Yahweh. And so that will bring us up now to chapter 18, verse 1, which says this. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. You see, up until this point, Elijah has essentially been hiding out and avoiding Ahab, and yet here he is now in the third year of the drought, and God is telling him to go to Ahab because he's about to send some rain. So to take some time here, let me just summarize the next several verses. And so uh, in verse 2, we're told that Elijah begins to, to head towards Ahab. But then in verse 3, we're introduced to this new guy, a guy named Obadiah, who was some sort of official or administrator for the king of Ahab. And yet, unlike Ahab and Jezebel, Obadiah, we're told, was a faithful follower of Yahweh. In fact, verse 3 tells us that he was a devout believer in the Lord. And that actually, even previous to this, uh, when Jezebel was in one of her tirades, let me just lower that down, so I can look at the microphone over there, but uh, when Jezebel was in one of her tirades, 
that Obadiah took, uh, he was out killing all the prophets of Yahweh, and Obadiah took a hundred of them, and he hid them in case and, and provided for them in order to save their lives. And so again, this guy, Obadiah, he's the real deal. He's not just a believer in name only, but no, he actually loves the Lord, and he's trying to follow him in the midst of having to serve this, this wicked king. And so what happens next in the story is that Elijah runs into Obadiah, and he tells him, go tell Ahab that I, I want to meet with him. And, and Obadiah is like, wait, wait a second, Elijah, like, if he's not getting killed, because if I go and tell Ahab that I saw you, and, and that you want to meet with him, and then I show up with him, and you take off, Ahab's going to kill me. And, and he's like, how do I know that the Spirit of the Lord is not just going to carry you off somewhere? It's kind of maybe that has been happening. And so, again, Obadiah is a little bit resistant to this plan. And yet Elijah, he, he assures him, he says, don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. Go get Ahab. And so that brings us to verse 16. It says this. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab, and he told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands, and you have followed the Lord. Now summon the people from all over Israel and meet me on Mount Carmel, and bring four, uh, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. That must be an enormous table to fit 850 people, but anyway, that's the side point. So it says in verse 20, So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Okay, so we see here that Elijah and Ahab meet after three long years. And again, you have to remember the last time uh, that these two saw each other, Elijah told him that the Lord is going to send a famine of punishment. And, and so Ahab here, as they meet each other, starts out by calling Elijah the troubler of Israel. And Elijah turns that around on him and is like, wait, 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 I'm not the troubler of Israel. You're the troubler of Israel. Your family and, and your wife, you're the reason why this punishment has happened. You have forsaken the Lord's command, and you have led Israel, the, the people of God, into following these false gods. And so again, I'm, I'm not the problem. I'm not the troublemaker. You are. And then Elijah said, okay, let's, let's settle this once and for all. Go get all the prophets and get the people of Israel and meet me on Mount Carmel. You see here in verse 20 that the people of Israel and the prophets do indeed come, they show up. And then in verse 21, Elijah confronts the people of Israel. He's like, look guys, how much longer are you going to waver, or in some translations say that, how long are you going to limp between two opinions? So the word there, the word picture there, is this idea of leaning on two different crutches. And he's like, look, how long are you going to lean on two different gods? You need to decide what you're going to do. If Yahweh is God, then follow him and be all in. But if Baal is God, then, then follow him. And yet what we see is that the people say nothing. They stay silent. And so, uh, again, this is the first point in our outline is a confrontation. Not only is Elijah confronting Ahab, but Yahweh is actually confronting the false god Baal, and in doing so, he's confronting the people of Israel. I don't know where you're at in terms of your enjoyment of confrontation. I, I know for myself it's not something I enjoy. I think I've said that before here. 
Um, you know, particularly when it involves someone I don't know, like a company or a business, I just hate that. And uh, thankfully, usually I end up making my wife do it or asking her to do it and paying her to follow her, like, you know, the cable company here at Peacock Man. Um, and so she has an easier time confronting people she doesn't know, but has a hard time confronting people that she does know, whereas I'm a little bit the exact opposite, so it sort of works out on my marriage. But, but even still, the reality is, is that sometimes confrontation is necessary. In fact, sometimes confrontation can even serve as a kind of wake-up call to someone. Uh, I came across this amazing story this week of a pastor named William Grimshaw, who was a pastor in England in the 1700s. And actually, he was, he was a pastor in England during the Great Awakening. During, uh, if you remember, in the 1700s, there was a, a revival happening both in Great Britain and also in the United States. And, and, and Grimshaw was a part of that. He was a contemporary and a friend of guys like Whitfield and John Wesley. And, and, and in the story that I came across, he heard about a married couple in his congregation who uh, were making all of these boasts and all these claims about living a holy and a righteous life. And, and you know, they were acting like they were very generous and all of these things. And, and yet there was a rumor floating around the church that the exact opposite was true. And so, uh, if you're the pastor, what do you do in that scenario? Well, what William Grimshaw did was he borrowed uh, some beat-up clothes from somebody and he essentially dressed up like a homeless man, and he went to this couple's house uh, at nighttime, and he knocked on their door, and, and, and in this disguise, he begged them to take him in. And then the couple refused. And he continued on, and Jesus made it known, like, I, I'm very desperate. This is a, a desperate situation. Please take me in for the night. And even still, the couple said no. At which point, Grinshaw ripped off the disguise, revealed who he was, and he began rebuking them for being hard-hearted and for coveting and, and, and not being generous towards the poor. You can imagine Pastor Chris dressed up like a homeless man knocking on your door, asking you to take him in, and then you say no, and he just rebukes the mess out of you, right? Like, that's amazing. Um, I'm not sure how to do it, but uh, again, the point I'm trying to make here is that sometimes confrontation is ne- necessary. Sometimes you can be so deep in sin, you can be so deceived that actually you need to be confronted in order to have a kind of a wake-up call. And that's what we see Elijah and the Lord doing here with the people of Israel. And so that brings us to the second movement in our outline this morning, and that is the competition. Look at verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am only, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets, get two bulls for us, let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves, and let them cut it into pieces, and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Will you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire to your God. And all the people said, what you say is good. Okay, so Elijah, we see here, he proposes this kind of competition between himself and Yahweh versus uh, the false prophets and the God Baal. And basically, the idea is that each of them will prepare an altar, they'll prepare a sacrifice, and then they'll take turns calling on the name of their uh, respective gods. And whichever God answers by setting the sacrifice on fire, that will prove who is the one true God. And again, the people of Israel, they respond uh, by saying, that comes good to us. And so, what happens? Well, let's keep going. Look at verse 25. Elijah said to the prophet of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. 
Call in the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bulls with the men and they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal answered us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah made, uh, he began to taunt them. How louder he said, Surely he's a god? Perhaps he's deep inside, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakening. And so they shouted louder and they flashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice, but there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Okay, so Elijah here has them go first, and they start out by praying and calling out to, to Baal from morning until lunchtime, and yet nothing happens, there's, there's no response, no answer. And so around lunchtime, uh, Elijah begins to mock them, he begins to taunt them. He's like, come on, guys, just shout louder. Uh, maybe he's claiming this is a God, right? Shout louder. Or maybe he's uh, busy thinking or he's musing. Or maybe he's just busy. Uh, and actually, that word busy there, as it says in NIV, uh, in the Hebrew, it carries with it this idea of maybe he's uh, relieving himself or maybe he's defecating. It's kind of a little graphic. But, but again, the, I think that's the point here. Elijah is making fun of them. And maybe you guys didn't use the bathroom. Got a little louder. Tell me to get off the floor, you know? Um, he goes on to suggest another couple reasons as to why maybe Dale's not anything. Well, maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and he needs to wake him up. And so clearly, Elijah here is mocking them. And as he's mocking them, they get even more panicked, more frantic. It says they actually get worked up to the point where they begin to cut themselves and begin bleeding everywhere. It's a way, I think, to try to manipulate or to convince Baal to answer them. And I know that's like, probably super weird for us, that someone would cut themselves. And they even said there that it was part of their custom. In other words, self-harm, self-destruction, and cutting was a part of the way that they worshipped the God Baal. Which is interesting because in a very real and graphic way, I think this illustrates the self-destruction and the self-harm which takes place when you and I worship false gods. And the reason for that is because in the scriptures, the scriptures make it clear that behind these false gods, these false idols, there are actually real demonic powers and demons. And that these things are real and they're destructive. And their number one goal in all of our lives is to steal, kill, and destroy. And so if that's true of the false gods in ancient Israel, certainly that's true of the false gods in our own day. And so again, they, they kept themselves. There's some self-harm taking place as they continue to cry out. But again, it tells us there that no one answered, no one paid attention, there's no response. And so what happens, uh, this is what happens with the prophets of Baal, but what happens when it's Elijah's turn? So let's keep reading. Look at verse 30. And Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, You shall be, your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he built a strength around it, large enough to hold two fields of seed. He arranged the wood, and he cut the bowl into pieces, and he laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, 
fill four large jars with water and pour it out on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said to them, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled tanks. At the time of the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and you have done all, and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you are the Lord our God, you the Lord our God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the tank. Okay, so Elijah calls the people to come near to him. And then it says that he begins to rebuild the altar of the Lord, which uh, is interesting because it implies there that there used to be an altar that it had been torn down. The other thing that's interesting about this altar is that he takes uh, 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And the reason that's interesting is because, again, you've got to remember that Israel was a divided nation at this point. All of the 12 tribes were no longer together, and yet he takes 12 stones representing the full nation of Israel, which I think what he's doing there is he's representing the, the heart of God towards the nation of Israel. That these 12 tribes were meant to be together. I think it's even clear here that he's alluding and, and drawing back into the covenants that God made with Israel. Which is why he starts off his prayer in verse 36 by praying to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Now, the other thing that we see here, which I haven't pointed out yet, and it's kind of been happening throughout the passage, is that it's clear that Elijah has done everything that he can in order to give the prophets of Baal an advantage in the competition. For example, even the location that he picked was a being non Carmel, uh, that was known as this sacred dwelling or the sacred place uh, of Baal. And so in picking this location, Elijah was essentially giving them home field advantage. And, 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 and the other thing that is an advantage is that he, uh, in, in picking the competition where he answered by fire, um, again, you have to remember that most practically what this would have looked like was lightning coming down from heaven in order to light the sacrifice. And I already told you that uh, Baal was known as the storm god. And so answering by lightning, by fire, should have been within his wheelhouse, right? And so, again, Elijah is giving them advantages. As well, he, he lets them go first. He gives them uh, a ton of time. They, they cry out from morning until evening, and yet nothing happens. And then when it's Elijah's turn, he actually again stops the death against Yahweh by pouring water all over the sacrifice. And for you uh, Boy Scouts and backpackers out there, you know that trying to light wood that's wet is basically impossible, and yet that's what Elijah does in order to give them every advantage, in order to stop the death in their favor. And yet all that it takes is for Elijah to utter a very short and simple prayer. Simple prayer to Yahweh, and the Lord answers immediately. And not only does the fire consume the wood and the sacrifice, but it tells us that it actually burns up the stone and the soil and the dirt around it. And again, for you, Boy Scouts, or anyone who has experience in building bonfires, stones and soil don't burn up. 
And so clearly the Lord is not messing around here. He is dramatically and supernaturally proving that He is the one true God. Again, like I said in the introduction, uh, if, if this was a game show uh, to tell the truth and the host says, will the real God please stand up, Yahweh is very clearly standing up and showing that He is the one true God. And that's exactly part of what Elijah prays for. Again, he said, answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you are the Lord our God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. So this here is the competition. Let's go to the last part of our outline, which is the conclusion. Look at verse 39. When all the people saw this, they saw prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them. So the fire falls from heaven, and in response, the people of Israel fall to the ground, and they declare that Yahweh is the true God. And then immediately, Elijah commands the people to gather up these false prophets and to take them to the Kishon Valley and have them killed. And I know for many of us, we read verses like that, and it, and it just bothers us. It still troubles us to, to see, you know, sort of this mass bloodshed or something. But what you have to actually realize is that this act is in of itself an act of repentance. It's actually an act of obedience on Israel's part because in reality, the law of Moses commanded the people of Israel to, to, to slaughter and to kill false prophets. You see this in Deuteronomy 13, as well as Deuteronomy 18 and 20, which says this, that a, a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. And so again, Elijah and the people of Israel in killing these prophets, they are simply following and obeying the law of the Lord. And you know, if you think about it, it's honestly not all that different from uh, what we do as a nation when we kill and execute those who are guilty of espionage or of, of treason. And again, I know that for some of you, again, you, you can't get over this kind of stuff that bothers you. This is maybe even why uh, you avoid the Old Testament. But I really like and agree with what commentator Bill Ross Davis wrote in reference to this. He said, uh, The Red Army troops were overrun, uh, overrunning Berlin in the spring of 1945. Some of these troops were Russian peasants unfamiliar with the amenities of modern life. Bathroom plumbing mystified them. They sometimes used toilets to wash and peel potatoes since they didn't know what bathrooms were for and they couldn't locate outhouses. They left excrement and urine everywhere. A red soldier might stare at a German toilet, but he just didn't get it. That is the way that Christians often look at the verse, at verse 40. We read it, and we go into all kinds of moral hysteria. We simply don't get it. The problem is not with Elijah or the Old Testament, but with us. We react the way that we do, and our subliminal view, apostasy is not that big of a deal. We simply don't understand Yahweh's violence against rebellion and his people. He uses surgery, not dressment, on cancer. The problem is not God's lack of refinement, but our lack of sanctification. If our thinking were holy, we would understand success. This nasty episode of the Kishon testifies that we have little horror of sin, and it calls evangelical Christians in particular to repentance. 
Now I know that that might sound like a pretty hard statement, and, and maybe it is, but, but in reality, I think God's more keeps running. And I'll put myself in that category as well. We, we really just don't understand how big of a deal apostasy and rebellion is against our Creator. And yet, that is what we see God do here. He judges and punishes these prophets of Baal. But he actually, if you look at the text, he actually shows a lot of grace and mercy towards the people of Israel. See, God demonstrably, demonstrably proves that he is the one true God in their presence, and in doing so, he sovereignly is turning the hearts of Israel back towards himself. And so, yes, these false prophets are judged and punished, but Israel here is some grace and mercy, even though they too were guilty of forsaking the Lord. Now, what about Ahab? What happens with him? Well, let's finish up the story now. Look at verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel. He bent down to the ground, and he put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and he looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, Go back. The seventh time the servant reported, A cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, Go and tell Ahab, Pitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, and the wind rose. A heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking in his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Okay, so after dealing with these false prophets, Elijah then turns his attention to King Ahab, and he tells him, hey, why don't you go off now and, and, and eat some food and, and have some drink, because it's about to rain. This famine is about to be broken. And weirdly enough, Ahab listens to him, and he goes off, and he begins to eat and drink. And as he's doing that, Elijah climbs to the back of the top of Mount Carmel, and he begins to pray. So that he sits down, that he uh, brings his knees up to his chest, and he puts his face between his knees, and he begins to pray. And as he's praying, he then sends out his servant to go step over the Mediterranean to see to see if anything is happening. And so that he does this seven times. And it's not until the seventh time that there begins to appear this small cloud. And it's all that becomes Elijah's time that God is going to fulfill this promise that he's going to send rain. And so he sends his servant to go to Ahab and he says, hey, you better get going in your chariot before you get stuck in the mud. Because we got a big storm coming. And, and, and so it says there that immediately the sky grew dark. And the wind picks up and the rain starts falling and buckets for and then the chapter finishes with a very interesting but somewhat bizarre verse where it tells us that the power of the Lord, that the Spirit comes on Elijah, and he tucks in his cloak or his long dress, and he begins running, and somehow he ends up outrunning Ahab's chariot all the way back to Israel. Now, there's some different theories as to what, what's the significance of him outrunning us and, and this whole scene. But to me, the thing that makes the most sense is that God here is underlining the fact that those who trust in Him will be victorious. See, actually, according to the law of Moses, Israel's kings were not supposed to have chariots in the first place. And the idea is they have riding one. So again, I think what the Lord's doing here is He's illustrating this principle uh, that we actually see in Psalm 20, which says this. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to His anointed. 
He answers him from the 70th century with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. So we see here Elijah is demonstrating what happens when you and I trust in the Lord rather than these other man-made, or not man-made, man-made horses, but man-made chariots, when we trust in these other powers. And so if we step back from this story, what kind of lessons, what kind of application can we make with it? And for me, as I was studying this passage, the, one of the lessons I, I, I saw very clearly was this, that the Lord demands absolute loyalty. And therefore, sitting on the fence spiritually is not an option. You see, in today's story, what, what the Lord does through Elijah is he calls the people of Israel to make a decision. In other words, he tells them to get off the fence. Again, verse 21 is clear. Elijah says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. If you remember right after that, it says there that the people said nothing. I think the reason they said nothing is because they were trying to have it both ways. They were trying to have their cake and eat it too. You see, in their minds, they hadn't totally rejected Yahweh. They just wanted to worship Yahweh and worship Baal and these other false gods. And yet, because the Lord is God, and because He demands all of loyalty, He confronts this attitude and this mindset in His people, and He tells them, look guys, this isn't working anymore. You have to choose. And really, when you study the Bible, you see that there are many times throughout the history of the people of God that God asks them to make a decision. We see it with Moses right before they go into the promised land. Uh, we see it again a few years later with Joshua. And that's where you get that famous phrase where Joshua is like, look, guys, I don't know what you're going to do, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And again, you just see that in multiple places throughout the scriptures. God calls his people to make a choice between loving and following him or loving and following other gods. As I thought about that, that, uh, that notion that God sometimes comes to people and asks them to make a decision, I, I really sense that we're seeing this question being raised and asked in our nation and in our churches. I believe the Lord is asking us and He's bringing us to a place of decision. See, I think for far too long, churches in America have been filled with people who are spiritually sitting on the fence. And now that we're at this point in our society where the social and cultural benefits of being a Christian are, are basically gone, and it actually costs you something to be a Christian, you see that many people are starting to walk away from the faith. And I know that for many of us, that can be really discouraging. It can be really disheartening when we think back to people who uh, were here and part of our fellowship and just part of uh, the church in general who now are declaring on their social media that they're no longer a Christian. And again, I know that's disheartening, that's discouraging, but, but actually it, it could be considered a good thing. See, the Lord isn't done any favors, and the church certainly isn't done any favors by being filled with half-hearted, half-committed followers of Jesus Christ. The time where they have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. No, I actually think it's better for the church to be small but filled with real committed disciples than to be large but filled with phony or double-minded so-called Christians. And so again, because of that, I, I just think the Lord gets to a point where he gets fed up with it. 
And he's like, look, guys, we're, it's time to make a decision. It's time to get off the fence. And, and on this point, I, again, I really like what Bill Ralph Davis wrote. He said this, commitment has consequences. Elijah will not allow you to attend a God contest so that you can simply conclude, well, now we know that Yahweh is the real God. What movie do you want to see? Elijah, the Bible, Yahweh himself will not allow you such, uh, will not allow you to comfort a such detachment. If Yahweh is God, follow him. The existence of the real God is not a detachment, but a demanding matter. If out of the Bible refuses to be the topic of your rap session, he's not an idea that you play with, but he is a king to whom you submit. You better understand up front all that is involved. Yahweh is very straightforward. If I am God, he says, follow me. Here is no tame God. He, we might say, keeps flopping over into my life, claiming it, invading it, refusing to allow me to put him in his religion box. We may prefer a God that we have domesticated. We show him his deity litter and we keep him in his place. But that is not the real God. You hear him in 1 Kings 18, 21, and if you transpose that text into the New Testament theology, you will realize that it does not permit any nonsense like having Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord. He doesn't give you that option. And so this is the first lesson that we see here. God is calling you and I to make a decision. Will we follow him or will we follow false gods or follow the world? The second lesson that I want to draw off this morning is this. Even in our worst, uh, the worst of times, God always has a remnant of true followers, and it's usually bigger than you think. See, one of the things that comes out in this text and in the passages around it is that Elijah keeps complaining over and over again, and he's like, I'm the only one left. I'm the only true follower of Yahweh. I'm the only prophet who is left. And yet we know that that's simply not true. We saw at the beginning of chapter 18 that uh, Obadiah told uh, Elijah, remember, I, I, can't, I saved 100 of the Lord's prophets by hiding them in these caves. And so Elijah knows that, and yet he keeps saying, I'm the only one left. And, and what we see is that he continues that even into chapter 19, after what happens in 18. And in chapter 19, I think of that famous story where God comes to Elijah in the still small voice. And in that conversation, Elijah tells, tells the Lord, he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, they've torn down your altars, and they have put to death uh, the prophets with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me. The Lord responds by saying, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. See, God's like, no, you're not Elijah. You think you're the only one? You're not the only one. You're never the only one. I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knees to Baal. I think what we see here is that as Elijah comes under pressure, as persecution begins to, to come to him, and he narrows in, he begins to lose sight of the fact that God is bigger than he thinks, that God always has a remnant. And I, I don't know about you, but, but for me, I, I know for myself in these last couple of years that story after story has come out about this Christian pastor or this Christian musician who has uh, left the faith or who has 
disqualified themselves. They were in living some crazy double life. And as all those stories just keep and keep coming out, I know that it's left me in this place of feeling like, yeah, am I the only one who's like legit around here? Am I the only one who's not living some secret or double life? Am I the only one who still believes that this is the Word of God and, and all stuff the parts that even the world doesn't like? And, and again, I know that that's not true, but, but it, as again, the story of the story comes out, I just can begin to narrow in. I can lose sight of the fact that God always has a true remnant of faithful believers. His remnant might just not be celebrity pastors and Christian musicians, right? It might be those believers that you and I have never heard of in China or in Iran. And so God always has a remnant. And so instead of putting my faith and my hope in, in others, these well-known believers, you and I need to put our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. See, I think maybe you and I are living in some sort of era where God is sifting the church of America. Where he is exposing our sin and our, our hypocrisy. He's gotten sick of it. He's tired of people claiming to be one thing but secretly living a double life. And I believe he's allowing our sin to be found out. But in that process, you and I must not lose sight of the fact that he's at work, that he's building his church, that there is a remnant who are faithful to him. And so we must not get cynical. We must not give up. We have to resist this tribal or this narrowing in, and instead, you and I need to more than ever unite ourselves with other faithful believers. Instead of acting like we're the only ones or we're the only ones doing this right, you and I need to look around, we need to get our eyes up, and to look for those Christians who are being faithful, who are holding on to the Word of God. And so that's the second lesson we see here. But the last lesson I want to draw out uh, is very simply this. When God rebukes us, it's always an invitation to come back home to him. See, in sending the famine uh, on Israel for three years and in participating in this competition on Mount Carmel, Yahweh is both rebuking the people of Israel, but he's also inviting them to come back to him. And really, this idea of rebuking an invitation is it's really, I think, the place in the soil in which revival and renewal can and does take place. You see, revival has less to do with what's happening out in the world and what's happening in the culture, and it has more to do with what's happening inside the church. You see, again, personally, I think the Lord is in this process of rebuking the church in America, but again, that's not a hopeless thing. Because in that rebuke, there is an invitation to come back home, an invitation to turn our hearts in an undivided way back towards Him. Well, you and I have a heart that is in love with Him only that's not fascinated and, and intertwined with the world. A heart that's devoted to serving Him instead of serving ourselves. And I just think that if we do this, if we collectively turn our attention toward the Lord with repentance and say, Lord, we, 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 we're, if we're being honest, we have uh, some level forsaken you. We have at some level been fascinated by the world, or we let the world dictate our values and our, our beliefs. I just think that if we do that, if we need this rebuke, if we accept this invitation, I think there is a good chance that God could just pour out His Spirit and that revival and renewal could take place even in our nation. So I just, if that's true, the question is, will we do it? Will we look to Him? 
Will we heed this rebuke and will we answer this invitation? Will we come to the Lord in desperate prayer saying, Lord, we need you. We can't do church as normal. But I, I forget who said it, but there was a, I think it was a, either the A.W. Poker or a missionary talked about the fact that the American church uh, could do so much. Uh, it could do everything that it's doing without the power of the Spirit. And it may that not be true of us. May we not be so pragmatic that we can continue on as church as normal in our own strength. This is not working. We need the power and the, and the presence of the Holy Spirit if we're going to see men and women come to Christ. If we're going to see you and I live out holy life, life that aren't, uh, uh, where we're, we don't have a double mind, where we're not uh, living in double lives. So we need the Lord. We need life to people of Israel. God has demonstratively proved in your life that He is the true God. Maybe you forgot that. Maybe you need to go back and remember your testimony, how the Lord saved you. I know that for me, when I think back to how God saved me when I was 19, there is absolutely no way that God wasn't the true God. I cannot deny it. Jesus saved me, and I know that He saved me. And I bet you, if you think back to your story, your history, you know that He saved you as well. And that, you know, you didn't get caught up in some, you know, religious fantasy or whatever, but that the true God revealed Himself to you. And you need to remember that, and you need to turn your attention and your heart back to Him. Father, we do in fact need you. God, we confess, Lord, we are hopeless and we are fruitless without your presence and your power in our lives. And Lord, I just confess to myself, Lord, I know there's been many times I've tried to uh, minister in my own strength, in my own natural ability, Lord, but it just doesn't work. Jesus, your church needs to be empowered by your spirit if we're ever going to see any sort of revival or renewal takes place in our culture. So, Lord, would you help us? Lord, would you show us what steps we need to take in order to humble ourselves, in order to turn our hearts and our attention back towards you? And, Lord, would you, as a result, commit to us? And would you, as a result, pour out your spirit on this church and on the churches around our nation? We need you, Jesus. Thank you very much.